Good morning, everybody. Well, you can really tell the, 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 the influence my voice has, I tell you. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> um, hey, first of all, before we say anything else, uh, I, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel, but um, chapter 4. But uh, just can we praise God for Trent Coakley this morning? Yeah, just a, a blessing, an honor to have him back with us, and congratulations to him as they, uh, he, he and his wife are, are, are anticipating a, a second arrival uh, I, in February, I believe. Um, so congratulations there. And yes, as, as Mary said, um, uh, we are honored to be a part of the Grace Fellowship Church, uh, I guess you could say legacy. Uh, we are we are. Um, honored to be a, 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 a part of that story. Uh, if, if you are a part of New Hope and you are not familiar with Grace at all, I'm sure that later on um, this afternoon or maybe tomorrow, I'm sure they're going to post the celebrations that um, they're uh, uh, today, their service today, um, that, that is going to have a, a special service uh, promoted to their 40th anniversary, which is actually their 41st anniversary. They just didn't do anything last year because of, uh, because of COVID. Um, we are continuing in our series, Bridges to Babylon, this morning. So again, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 4, or to bring it up. If, if anytime you, uh, you don't know where to go, you can always just Google Daniel chapter 4, uh, and, and then it'll come up. But uh, I, my favorite Bible website is BibleGateway.org. You can go there. Um, and uh, just to let you know, but sometimes we don't always mention this, I do preach from the English Standard Version, the ESV. So if you're ever wondering, where am I? What is he, where is he reading from? Because this doesn't look like the version that I have. I preach from the ESV. So anyway, I would like this morning to talk with us about the topic of pride. Now, before I say anything else about pride, it's important to note that the English language gets us into a little bit of trouble when we bring up this subject. Pride is, of course, often a very good thing. The athlete who, who works hard and makes the team should be proud of their accomplishment. Parents, you, you should tell your kids that you're proud of them, uh, especially when they do something praiseworthy. But in, in this light, pride can be a, a justifiable sense of one's own self-worth or, or acknowledging the worth of another. To tell somebody, I'm, I'm proud of you. You made, you, you did it. I'm proud of you. That's a good thing. It's an encouraging thing. It's especially pleasing to God when we affirm others because our sense of self-worth and self-respect ultimately should come from God who literally loves us to death. But this actually sets us up well for talking about the other kind of pride. Because when, when good pride is in its sweet spot, we're not only filled with appropriate self-respect, we're also willing and eager to, to point to like all the others who helped us get there. I mean, let, let's just make this real current. Lamar Jackson had a fantastic fourth quarter last week. We, I watched most of the game, but like, like, like you know, I was like, all right, at the end of the third quarter, I don't know if we're going to be able to pull this thing out. And then this fourth quarter, this guy just comes alive. But the truth is, he ain't the only raven on the team. So, so is the student who makes the honor roll quick to thank parents and teachers and other students who help them along the way? 
Is the employee who gets the big promotion, is that employee eager to tell their boss about all the people on their team who are the real heroes of the project? You see, I think the way that we know that our pride is in healthy territory is when we are willing and eager to point to others, and especially if we're willing and eager to point to God. If we're not willing to do that, then, then who else are we going to point to? We're going we're to start pointing to ourselves. And at that point, it's at that point that pride turns ugly. And that's what I want to talk about for the rest of our time. I want to talk about vanity. I want to talk about vainglory and conceit. I want to think about arrogance and egotism and boastfulness and self-glorification and selfishness. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 4 today. And we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar in his final appearance in the book of Daniel. And we're actually going to hear an account from his own voice at a time when pride got the better of him. Jumping ahead, let let, let me read to you, like if you look all the way at the end of Daniel chapter 4, let let me read to you the final words of today's text. In verse 37, this is the king saying, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor of, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And let me tell you, <laughs> the way that that all happened, we're going to get to that in a minute, the way God humbled Nebuchadnezzar is like something out of the twilight zone. It's going to get a little weird today. But, but let's back up and look at the context, right? The, the book of Daniel, for those who are new to the story, the book of Daniel is the story of four Jewish young men being carted off uh, from Jerusalem to uh, exile in the kingdom of Babylon in the 6th century BC. Often when we think of Daniel, we think of God's people having to stand up for what they believe in, even in the face of the evil empire, right? That, that seems to be the lesson of stories like, you know, Rackshack and Benny in the fiery furnace like we saw last week um, and the incident of Daniel in the lion's den that we're going to get in a few weeks. Uh, by the way, my friend Drew Bennett is going to be here on the 31st and he's going to preach on, on Daniel 6, the Daniel in the lion's den. Really looking forward to that. He's awesome. He's uh, one of the, um, the, the adult ministry directors at Grace. Um, but, but standing up for what you believe in is certainly a theme. It's a theme of the book of Daniel. But the thing, that, the thing that's really struck me, the really thing that's really stuck out to me in each one of the stories that we've seen so far is, is the level of respect that Daniel and the boys show to the Babylonian authority. I mean, we all love a good Robin Hood story, right? We all love a story that, that sticks it to the tyrants and we love to see the sheriff of Nottingham fall into the pit of something, or, you know, like the manure truck, like oh, Back to the Future, I'm mixing movies. Anyway, we, we love that. But, but Daniel's not like that. No, in the, in the episodes we've seen so far of Daniel, we see him and his friends respecting the king and his authority because they trust that God was always the one who was putting the chess pieces into motion. I mean, there were certainly were times when they needed to, to plant their feet in their convictions. We're not going to eat from the king's table. We're not just going to tell the king what he wants to hear. 
We're not going to worship the golden statue because that's an idol. But, but it's fascinating that in all three of those instances from Daniel 1, 2, and 3, they did not take their rebellions one step further than they needed. The reason why they felt free to, to treat Nebuchadnezzar with that respect is because they knew who the real God was. We're going to see more of that again today, but, but, but this time, the, the, the funniest thing happens, actually. Daniel chapter 4, you'll notice from right at the beginning, the story, this, this chapter, is told from the point of view of Nebuchadnezzar himself. The chapter opens with the king singing a song of praise to God. He says, to all people, nations, language that dwell in on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. This evidently is the voice of the king of Babylon saying this. Presumably this is like introductory language. It, it reminds me of something that you might find at the beginning of one of Paul's letters, right? The, the, the narrative that follows is kind of sometimes in first person and other times it, it's in third, but it's clear that the chapter is like bookended. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, it's bookended with praise to God from Nebuchadnezzar's own lips. Beginning in verse 4, we get this flashback um, where Nebuchadnezzar tells us <clears throat> that one day he was uh, at ease in his house, and, and, and prospering in his palace. Now, I wouldn't want to judge, but if, you know, you called me up one day, and I say, hey, how you doing? And you're like, oh, I'm at ease, you know, in my house. I'm prospering in my palace. You know, I might raise an eyebrow, like, you know, you've been drinking. Um, anyway, he falls asleep and has this very scary dream. At the beginning of the chapter, it echoes chapter 2, right, when Nebuchadnezzar had these, had these dreams. And just like in chapter 2, the king is scared, and he's perplexed by the dream. Oh, what does this thing mean? And also like in chapter 2, um, he calls in the wise men to help him interpret it, but, but to no avail. None of the wise men can tell him what it means. Again, this echoes chapter 2. So, so now he calls in Daniel. Daniel, who, who by now is referred to by the king as Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Probably a term Daniel wouldn't have chosen for himself. Um, but by now the king trusts Daniel. He, he believes that Daniel is a good man and he sees that Daniel is at least someone with divine gifts. Uh, Daniel has risen pretty high in the king's regard. Why? Be because he's a good smithers? No, no, because Daniel is not a yes man. He takes those stands for his convictions. He accepts the consequences when they come. But Daniel also shows immense respect for the king. It's almost as if, king, I don't agree with everything you're doing. I don't agree with much of anything of what you're doing. But you know what? There's still a part of me that's on your side. There's still a part of me that that is praying for you. There's still a part of me that longs for you to, to bow a knee to the true king of kings. I don't want death for you, king. I want life. Daniel swallows what? He swallows his pride in order to serve both God and the king. Now, there's less drama this time around. 
And Nebuchadnezzar just tells Daniel the dream. In the dream, Nebuchadnezzar saw a gigantic tree. It was strong and big, and it reached to the heaven. Evidently, it was so magnificent, it was visible to the whole earth, and it had beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, and and many folks could eat from it. Animals found shade under it, and the birds lived peacefully in the trees of the branches. All of living creation in this dream was fed from this tree in some way. Now, this is very common in ancient literature, artwork, and architecture. Things that, that were big and grand Thought to be, uh, were thought to be high enough, big enough, grand enough to reach the heavens. You know, we see this in the Bible with the, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So Nebuchadnezzar sees this tree in his dream. And, and then he sees a watcher, which is interesting if anybody's into the, the what, what If show on the, on the Disney Plus or the MCU right now that might go, ooh, a watcher, that's kind of cool because that's a part of the show anyway. So Nebuchadnezzar sees what he calls a watcher in his dream an angel, a guardian, or uh, a divine messenger. And he describes this watcher as the Holy One, who, who comes down from heaven and proclaimed aloud, you know, comes down, sees this tree, and proclaims that this tree is going to be chopped down. Its leaves would be stripped from it. Its fruit would be scattered. Nebuchadnezzar is seeing all this in his dream. The birds and the animals would have to flee because, the, because only the stump of the tree would remain in the earth. And, and the stump of the tree is going to be bound with, with a band of iron and bronze like it, like it was capped. The watcher then begins to talk about the tree like it's a person. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from the man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the, to the end that the, the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. Okay, what's that mean? You know, Nebuchadnezzar tells all this to Daniel and asks again for interpretation. Again, although you've you've probably already figured out what the dream means, uh, again, uh, uh, Daniel, knowing full well that this dream was not good news for the king, he begins, verse 19, with what? Courtesy and respect. My Lord, may the dream be for those who, Daniel knows full well what this means, may this dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation be for your enemies. See, see Daniel, where does he begin? He begins with grace and then he moves on to the truth. Sir, King, Your Honor, Your Majesty, you're the tree. You've grown, you've become very strong. Your dominion reaches worldwide in one way or the other. As the watcher proclaimed, you will be cut down, O king. You will be humbled. You shall be driven from your people for a time. And when that happens, you're going to have to live with the beasts of the field. Grass will be your food, and you won't even come in from the rain because you yourself will be like the animals. Now, the good news is, 
that the tree stump with the metal cap that you saw, that actually represented the fact that this kingdom will be kept for you during that time period. And Daniel says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Listen, just, just listen to what I have to say. How are you, what do you need to do now? Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing what? Mercy to the oppressed. This is all about the, the lack of mercy that you've shown to your people, the lack of mercy that you've shown to an oppressed people. Show mercy, Lord. Show mercy, O king. Practice righteousness. Practice justice. And there perhaps, there may be a lengthening of your prosperity once you're done with this time of humbling. And there you have it. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was honest with Daniel, and Daniel was honest right back. But evidently, nothing changed. Justice was not practiced. Righteousness was not practiced. Mercy was not shown to the oppressed. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar's pride only swelled. A year goes by, and one day Nebuchadnezzar is again walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And remember that Babylon would have been a real sight to see, right? And, and while the king is walking on the roof, he comments to himself, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? You can feel the egotistic pride oozing from the king's mouth. He has forgotten about this tree. And verse 31 says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, all that stuff that Daniel said would happen came about. Madness overtakes the king, and the king is driven into the wilderness to live like a beast for seven periods of time. Now, that could be seven years. We don't know. Seven symbolizes completeness in the Bible. So, so we could read that like as long as it needed to be. How long would it take you to be humbled? How long would it take you to, to, to surrender your pride and say, Lord, this is never or was actually about my empire. It was about you. We're, we're told that when the king, Nebuchadnezzar, he, he gets out into the wilderness and we're told that, that his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird claws. Again, very creepy stuff. This, this is the great humbling. This is the humbling of the great Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. You, you kind of wonder if like, there's like werewolf lore that was like influenced by this. I, I don't know, but this is the humbling. This man, this great and majestic king, finds himself on his hands and knees, on all fours, living like a beast of the field, humbled, because his pride was so great that he couldn't see justice. He couldn't practice justice. He couldn't show mercy to the oppressed. You know, we might say that this unhealthy pride is self-love. You know, but that's thinking, thinking. Because there's nothing loving about puffing yourself up. What this pride does is that it sets you apart I have built this by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty, as Nebuchadnezzar says. As soon as we do that, we create this very isolated and lonely existence. I mean, think of that tower, or in this instance, a tree that is so high and lofty that it is so disconnected from the real world, from people who have real world problems. 
This is where the phrase like ivory tower comes from. A place of self-willed retreat from the world. A place that gives way to false judgment and ignorance to the plight of others. I mean, speaking of pride, the writer Henry Fairley says this. He says, the soul becomes inordinately pleased with itself. And it makes a solitary world in that tower, self-sufficient and walled in by its own self-pleasing. I mean, think about what pride often leads to. It leads to disobedience because it can assume like a superiority over the law or over rules or even over like the traditions of family. It, It leads to boasting, which makes it impossible to like communicate intelligently with others. It leads to arrogance which throws up walls between human beings and and groups. It leads to impatience. It leads to stubbornness, which will only fan the flames of conflict rather than invite cooperation. It leads to self-centeredness. It leads to vanity, which gives us license to declare, you know what? I've done the work. I, I can do anything that I want. And the heart swells and pride leads to self-pleasure, a self-pleasure in which there is no room for others. But be careful. Pride is not just the sin of the rich and powerful. It is the sin of anyone who fails to live out the call to sacrificial love as Christ defines it. Therefore, pride, it doesn't have to be the sin of anybody, right? Sadly, many look upon the rich and the powerful and assume pride in them. When we do that, we are in fact the prideful ones, right? Anytime we look at the rich and the powerful and the famous and we think to ourselves, that must be nice. Who's the prideful one now? Pride, it's, it's an excellent hiding place, right? It's a hiding place for the sophisticate who looks down on common like art and music and culture in the name of, well, I love the finer things of life. It's a hiding place for those who love liberty and freedom because it it sees anyone with power as synonymous with tyranny. It's a hiding place for anyone who sees that, uh, for any who are in love and so in love with a bygone era, you know, like the good old days, the ways things used to be, it was so much better then, that they ignore the present day world that God has placed them in. Pride is a hiding place for the academic who retreats from the simplicities of of common life and fellowship into the complexities of academia. And yeah, it's a hiding place for the boss who is so boastful of their accomplishments that it seems below them to actually serve their employees sacrificially, providing them with competitive wages and quality health care and benefits. You see, pride, pride can hit any of us at any age, no matter where we land on the social, theological, racial, economic, or political scale. And it's even more complicated than that. Dorothy Sayers says that the devilish strategy of pride, that the devilish strategy of pride is, is, is that it attacks us not in our weak points. It attacks us in our strength. It, is, it attacks us at our strongest points. It is, it is preeminently the sin of the noble mind. Self-righteousness is a common and particularly loathsome form of pride because it, it comes from virtue. I built this company. I did this. I was the one that, that came in at 5 a.m. every morning for, for years before you people ever got here. 
I deserve to treat you people like garbage. It's the, the, the lie that we start telling ourselves, right? The prideful person who worked hard at something, who worked hard to be something, can fall into the trap of seeing their accomplishments as an excuse to belittle another rather than inspire or invite others onto better things. Yeah, you did do the work. And that's awesome that you did the work. You did build this family. You did build this school. You did build this business. God wants to do something through that. And when you get so consumed with pride and you get into your tower and you can't actually see what's really going on in this world, pride is blinding you to a better tomorrow. Sometimes we can be so convinced of our, right, our rightness so intensely. We can be so intensely, maybe this is all in our mind, we can be so convinced of our moral superiority that, that this is what we're seeing so much in, in what we call cancel culture right now. Sometimes we can, be, we can be so convinced of our rightness so intensely that it, it blinds us to the humanity of the person right in front of us. And what happens? We, we cancel them and the conversation shuts down. And we settle for rhetoric instead of relationship. We settle for, for contempt instead of compromise. But the funny thing is, it's not funny at all. Right there, King Nebuchadnezzar, we are given this example in Daniel 4 that restoration is possible. Not only is restoration possible, it is what God desires for you and me. There is a path forward. Because with Jesus on the throne, there always is going to be. I mean, going back to our story, after his time in the wilderness, King Nebuchadnezzar, he tells us that, that, that finally, he lifted his eyes towards heaven. Like, think about pride as being a thing that we're, we're constantly looking down. Where maybe we're looking down at others, we're looking down, we're trying to ignore the things in front of us, but finally, King Nebuchadnezzar's renewal, his restoration comes when he lifts his eyes towards heaven. And his reason returned to him. And like Paul said, he was, he was transformed by the renewal of his mind. See, King Nebuchadnezzar hit rock bottom and he realized that when he got there and he couldn't go any further and he's down on the ground with the beasts of the field and he's eating grass. You know who he found there? God. God was there. God was there with him. God wasn't up in the clouds looking down on him going, ah, you pathetic piece of garbage. No, God was with him. He met God when he hit rock bottom. And he sings this song of praise to God and his, his authority is reestablished, at least for a time. And the chapter ends, Daniel chapter ends, as we quoted before with the king of Babylon, the king of the empire, praising the king of heaven. And what did he find? He found that the one true living God was not actually distanced and looking down on him in his shame, no, this God, Israel's God, his father, entered the messes of his life and offers a way out. As it says in John, it says right there in, the, in the, probably the most quoted passage of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes him should not perish but have eternal life. I mean, you know, as we've talked about many times before, that phrase, eternal life, it, it doesn't just mean living forever. It does mean that for sure. But, but more to the point, we could translate that 
that, that God desires for us to live the eternal kind of life. You see, there is a new creation bursting forth right here, right now in the midst of this one. And God's plan in Christ is to unite all things under the rule of King Jesus, not King Nebuchadnezzar or any other king. I mean, that's pretty big and lofty language. And, and we wonder when we hear that, like, well, where do we fit in that? If it's not about my pride, if it's not about my will, and it's about yours to be done, like, I'm, I'm still a person, right? Where do I fit in there? Where do we fit in? We fit in when we surrender our pride, surrender our ambitions, surrender our selfish desires, and we say to God, not my will, but yours be done. Because when we do that, we are surrendering our plans for how the world should be remade. Because we want, we want the world to be remade in our image, right? The world's an awful place. And I look at the news and I look out the window and I say, you know what, here's what I think the world should be. Surrendering our pride looks like putting that down. It's not about how I want to reshape the world. It is about how Jesus Christ wants to reshape the world because God is reuniting all things under him. It's funny, though, when, the, when that happens, the, the coolest thing happens. We find that, that God actually doesn't lock us away in some, like, holy closet or turn us into a drone, like, you know, just about doing God's will. No, actually, when that happens, when we surrender and we come to God in the posture of, of humility, that is the moment when God really uses us. That is the moment when, when our, our, our ambitions and our dreams and our gifts really can come alive. That's the when, the when we can actually be useful and build for this kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Because he put us here for a reason. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, right at the beginning of the chapter, he says, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the, by, the, uh, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice which is holy and acceptable to God, which, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't, don't, be, don't be interested in building up your own empires. No, be transformed. As Nebuchadnezzar found, he, we, we read in, in Daniel 4, we hear his, his mind was restored. His reason was re returned to him. So Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God wants us to live into this process. Paul says, you know, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, like this, this isn't by the grace given to me. This isn't because, you know, Paul either. He's like, this isn't because I'm so high and mighty. No, this is all, I'm, I'm sharing these things with you because of the grace given to me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't get so consumed with your own prideful empire, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, Paul says, as in uh, one body we have many members, you know, the hand does its thing and the knees do its thing and the feet does its thing. One body has many parts and these parts don't all have the same function, but they're all part of the same body. So we, though many, we are one body in Christ 
individually members of one another. We have a responsibility to bear one another's burdens. When we surrender our pride, we are better able to see the oppressed. We're better able to see how we can walk in justice and righteousness. Having gifts, as Paul says, that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. I mean, what's Paul saying? He's saying that when we surrender our pride... That, in that moment, that's when God can use us to build for his kingdom. When I surrender my pride, I am a better husband and I'm a better father. God has placed me as a leader of my family and for his kingdom, but for his kingdom, not mine. I mean, and if you, again, if you own, we're picking on business owners here, and, and, and I, I, I have nothing but like immense respect. Every Thursday morning, by the way, I host uh, um, uh, um, uh, coffee hour uh, for local business leaders. It was the folks that were involved in that job fair that we did. Um, I, I think the church should be a place where businesses are encouraged and, 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 and thanked for the role that they play in our community, but, but they also need to be held account like anyone else. If God has placed you in a position of, of as a business owner or a manager, God has placed you in that position in order to build for his kingdom through that business, by being a leader of integrity, by being a businessman or a businesswoman of integrity who does quality work for the community and serves their community, their, their employees well. I mean, we need to say this as clearly as we can if we truly are encouraging, if we, curly, if we truly can say that we are for businesses, especially local businesses in our community. If you are a Christian business owner or a manager, it is your job to serve your employees sacrificially. I mean, there's no other way to read the Bible's instructions on that one. If you're a teacher who's been put in charge of a classroom, if you're a, 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 a mother or a father uh, who, who have put, been put in charge of, of crafting a culture of a family, there is no other way to read the Bible's instructions on this one. Jesus washed the disciples' feet and then died for them on the cross before he handed the mission over to them. He modeled what a leader should look like. A Christian leader should be one who is cruciform, conformed to the image of the crucified Christ, sacrificial in love and joy and peace. So as the, as the worship team comes back, I just I want to ask you a question today. I mean, first of all, I want you to just think, What's my empire? What is it? Is it a family, classroom, a business? Maybe it's a sports team. Maybe it's a musical group. Maybe it's a house church. Maybe it's a church. Maybe your empire is actually in your brain. And it's actually all in your will about how you believe the world should be remade. Maybe your empire is one of anger. That you're so angry at how the world, you think the world should be, that you, you're blinded to the oppressed, you're blinded to justice, you're blinded to righteousness. I, I don't know. You, you tell yourself. In, in, in your head right now, as you think about it, where, what is your empire? As you think about that, you think about, is there anything inside of me that is saying right now, you know what, Lord, my pride it's gotten out of control. It, it may at one time have been about healthy self-esteem. 
at one point it may have been about that, about celebrating my accomplishments, which it should be. That's a good thing to celebrate our accomplishments. But, but now, gosh, I've gotten off course. I've lost the plot. And now it seems that this empire is, is about my majesty, my empire, my glory, my comfort, my control. It's all, it's all about me, God, and that's no way to live. I mean, if, if I know anything, I know that God is begging us to, to put that down, to follow his lead of cruciformity. You know, because here's the thing, as, as Nebuchadnezzar found out, your empire will fall. It is finite. It, there's no way it's either going to be time or something worse that makes your empire fall. God will humble the proud. So the, the point now is not that God's shaking his finger. It's that Jesus is coming down and he's saying, I love you guys so much. Put down your pride and follow me. I'm going to show you a life worth pursuing, as our friends at Grace Fellowship say. I'm going to show you a life worth living. Because my plans for this creation, my plans to unify the whole cosmos under the, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ is so much more powerful and so much better than anything you guys could dream up on your own. Nebuchadnezzar found out that his, his empire will has fallen and God will humble the proud. So, so surrender now and trust that, that even though everything around you looks like we're in exile, oh, I see the world's pain. The world just seems upside down right now. Trust that he is in it, that he is sovereign over it. And one day he will wipe every tear from every eye. A new creation is coming. At that moment, we will truly believe and we're invited to believe it now that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's within our grasp. Let me pray for us. Oh, Lord, I surrender to you my pride. I surrender those moments of my life when I've, I've, I've been intoxicated by my own accomplishments, by my degrees, by the information that I have. And Lord, I know that that's all finite. There is an end to me. But you are eternal. You are the beginning and the end. Father, I pray for us as a congregation, as a community, as a family, that we might put down our pride, look to you and say, not our will, Lord, but yours be done. What would your will be for New Hope Community Church if we, if we surrender the things that we want this place to be and surrender to, to your will? What would you have this congregation be? What would you have this family be? Lord, that's what we want. That's what we want. That's our desire. Help us to be the men and women and children and students and business leaders and mothers and fathers and all the things that you've called us to be. Help us to be those things the, the way that you've created us to be. Not as we would define it, but as you would define it. Fueling us, breathing new life, your Holy Spirit breathing that new Holy Spirit life into us so that we can open those doors and be the church for a broken world. When we surrender our pride, we are so much able 
better able to do that, Lord. Help us with that today. You love us so much. You love us so perfectly. Help us to see it better. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.